Amen. I want to say thank you to those that went on the trip, took the time and invested their time to go, and thank you for those that helped provide the finances for this team to be able to go and to serve this church plant that's up there in the Boston area. And thank you to everyone who was uh, intentional to pray for this trip as they went. We got to pray for them on a Sunday morning several weeks ago, but just praying as they were gone away. It was, it was great to be able to see the impact that they've had up there. And for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, what God has done in Boston and the greater Boston area over the last decade has been uh, amazing. It's been so encouraging. I've gone up there on seven, eight trips, something like that, to serve on all sides of the city, north and south, east and west of the city. And when I first went up there, north of the city, there were only three evangelical churches that they were, uh, that they were aware of. And now there are multiple churches that are multiplying into other churches, and we're seeing that happen around the city. So even this new church plant, or church plant that's been going for a couple years, is planted on the east side, as close to the water as you can get. And they're just impacting the city, a city that has a lot of people. And so I'm just grateful for what God has done, what he continues to do, and how he's used West Cabarrus Church just to play a small part in what he's doing up there in New England and the greater Boston area. So thank you so much for those that prayed, that give, and that went on that trip. All right, well, today we're going to be in 1 Peter, continuing through the series Living Hope. So I hope you brought a copy of God's Word. You're going to need one today. We're going to be at the end of chapter 1, going into the beginning of chapter 2. And for those of you that might be new here, first, we're glad that you're here worshiping with us. We're walking through this series on living hope because Peter is writing a letter to people who are going through various trials and suffering and pain, and he's trying to encourage them with the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ because he has risen from the grave. And so all throughout this book, he's been bringing up living hope again. And last week we saw that he's encouraged them that this living hope is not just some intangible thing way out there. It actually applies to your everyday life. And we saw that this living hope leads us from hope to holiness. Today we're going to see that this living hope leads us from hope to a deep life of love. So again, the practical application of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So you follow along with me as I read, starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere Brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of imperishable seed, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long, long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into your salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we've stopped now and we thank you for this living hope that we have in you. You give us this hope, um, not just to help us in eternity or to hope for eternity, but this is a hope that impacts and changes the way we live today. So we thank you for the truth that we saw last week, that your hope leads us to holiness. But I pray today that, Lord, you would give us understanding 
on how and why this living hope leads us to love well. So, Lord, speak to us this morning because we desperately need a word from you. Now, let me invite everyone in this room to use this this time of silence right now, just this brief moment, to pray and ask that God would speak to you through his word today. Pray right now. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of your word that we hear today. We also want to rejoice in your word as we live it out this week. Lord, help us to love your word because it's through it we we come to know the peace that you offer us through you. So we thank you for this word. Change our hearts and our lives now through it. Amen. All right, well, this passage that I just read to you is kind of a sandwich passage that you have to see on both sides of it to really grasp what he's trying to communicate to us. At the very beginning, he uses some, some kind of odd, tricky words that I'll unpack for us in a second to, to help us understand what he's saying. But in verse 22, he's saying, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. I'll unpack it in a second, but what he's talking about right there is our obedience to the truth, to trust in Christ, the salvation that we have. He starts this section talking about our salvation. And then at the end of the se- this section that I read, he also talks about our salvation. That we should long for the pure spiritual milk that is growing us up into our salvation. So you've got kind of the sandwich, the salvation, the beginning, the, the hope of the gospel. You've got it at the very end, the, the hope that we have in the gospel. And then right there, stamped in the middle of it, is the meat of the passage. The command to love one another. This is the verb, and everything is framed around that. And the reason why that's so important is because if you don't understand the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ, then you'll never understand how to love. If you don't understand the reality that we love because He first loved us, then you won't get the command to love one another correct. And so that's how He kind of frames it in here, this living hope of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And then He tells us to love one another And so I want us to first see this morning that a living hope leads us to a sincere and an earnest love. Leads us to a sincere and an earnest love. Now, verse 22 at the beginning, like I mentioned, having purified your souls, we might read this and think what he's saying here is, oh, oh, so I have to be purified through my obedience and my morality in order for me to love people well. Because when we read this here, we're, we're reading this having purified your souls, and we're thinking just in the past tense. We're thinking that I'm morally living this out, and that's purifying my soul. But that's not what it is teaching. You see, we read purified as just solely past tense, but the word in the Greek is actually a, 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 a word of perfect tense, which means it's a, a past action that's fully been completed but it has present implications for us. It runs into today. So he's saying we have been purified. It's not working so hard that we are purified of our sins through our works. No, it's saying instead that there's a moment in the past where you were purified, past tense, and there are implications for you here in the present. So how in the world did we get purified? How were our souls pure before the Lord. 
Well, it tells us in the very next part of verse 22, by obedience to the truth. What is he talking about there? Well, he had just talked about this truth, this reality in verses 18 through 21, that Christ was the ransom for our sins. How he died on the cross in order to forgive us, and then he rose from the grave to give us a living hope. And he said, because you realize that truth, you heard that truth, you had a choice to either bow the knee to that truth or bow up against it and say, I don't want it. But he said, you've heard the truth. You've heard the gospel. And you responded in obedience to the truth. You bowed the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because of that, you have a purified soul. Purified soul. But remember, it's a purified soul that has implications for today. And there's a, a, a key word in 22, and it's a short word. It just says for. For. The beginning part right there is telling us that we have been saved, but our salvation has a purpose. There's a plan for it. There's a road. There's a path that it's meant to follow. And that's what it's telling us in verse 22 when it says for. It's created and made for something. What is it made for? Well, verse 22 says, for a sincere brotherly love. That we would love not just God our Savior, but that we would love one another. This brotherly love is a, like a familiar language, language that would talk about loving family. And he's talking about having love within the church for the brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would love one another. We cannot separate our love for God and our love for one another within the church. You can't do it. It's like for my middle son. I have three kids, and my middle son's name is Reese. When Reese was born, there were two truths about his life that he could not change. He couldn't change. First, when he was born, he was loved by a father. He was a son. That's a reality, that's a truth about him, that I loved him and he was my son. But the second reality about his life was that he was also a brother. <laughs> he has an older sister, Haley. And that doesn't change whether he wanted it to or not. He can't say, wait, time out, time out, time out, time out. Nope. I'm good being a son, but I don't want anything to do with being a brother. I don't want to do that. He doesn't have that option. They're one and the same. And that's what Peter's trying to get us to see today. We can't just say, well, I love God, and I place my faith in Him, and He's good, and so all my love's going to be pointed just that direction. Peter's like, no, 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 no. The hope, your living hope, your salvation that you have in Christ, yes, it rescues you, and yes, you praise Him, and you love Him for it, but that love is for something. What? For a sincere, brotherly love that we would share that with others. You can't just say, I only want to worship and love God and Him alone. You worship him alone, absolutely, but you love one another with a brotherly love, a brotherly love. And then he uses two participles that explain and help unpack what it looks like to love like this. How do we love one another? He says, sincerely and earnestly. And this is what this love is supposed to look like in our lives, sincerely and earnestly. So how do we love from a sincere heart? Well, that word sincere means truthful, honest, not fake, not hypocritical, 
Christian love is meant to be an honest, truthful love, a real love. And this is how we're called to love one another. And there's a very dangerous movement in our society today that equates love with tolerance and that they're at the same thing. So if you love me, you can't tell me that I'm doing something wrong because that wouldn't be loving. And you can't make any kind of negative comment about my life because that is not being tolerant or loving. Now, if that's how we define love, we have to understand that that flies in the face of how the Bible describes love. And second, it flies in the face of common sense that you and I know to be love. We know it. I mean, just think biblically. Biblically, Jesus, the the most loving person who ever walked the face of the earth, he spoke harsh truths. And it wasn't because he was trying to be mean or hateful. It's because he, he knew people were walking down a path that was not good for their souls. And so he called out sin. He called out the the sin of lust. He called out the sin of greed, the sin of selfishness in people. Those are sins that we need to be forgiven of. And Jesus called it out, not to condemn people, but so that people would come to him and be saved and be forgiven. And so Jesus spoke hard truths, but he spoke the truth in love. So biblically, this is what love looks like, that we would have a sincere love, an honest love, a real love. We find that in the Bible. But just, just pause for a second, because even in our common sense, we know that, that the way the world defines tolerance is not real love. And the reason why we, is we look around at our world and we see warnings all the time. We see truth spoken all the time for people who could possibly harm or hurt themselves. And we speak it out and we tell them why. Because we don't want them to get hurt. I mean, there's Surgeon General warnings on all sorts of things. Do we ever sit and be like, how dare they? How dare they put that on there? I mean, we have, we have road signs, right, that warn us of things ahead. There's a sharp turn ahead, falling rocks, all these different things to kind of be aware of, to know that there's, there's an issue ahead. We, we have warning signs that tell us truth so that we're not harming or hurting ourselves. I mean, have, have any of us looked at, it, looked at one of those warning signs and been like, how dare the DMV put a sign like that on my road? They're so intolerant. no. Common sense, we know if somebody is, is, is in a place of harm or could be hurt, we actually celebrate those people, right? We celebrate those people who protect and serve us, whether it's in law enforcement or in the fire department, we're thankful for those people because we know this is a loving act in which they do, right? And this is the kind of truth and this kind of love together that God's Word is calling us to have within the church, that we would love sincerely, Now, I know that there's a massive tension between these two things. How in the world do you speak truth and love at the same time? Because that's that's really difficult. That's really hard, and and it is. God's Word didn't just give us all easy commands. There are hard commands that we live out. But we need to have wisdom to do that well. And I loved how one pastor talked about it. How do we communicate truth and love together? He said it's a lot like how we would mop a dirty kitchen floor. He said you look at a kitchen floor that's dirty, and you have two options on how to, how to fix that issue, right? You can come and you can take that bucket of water and cleaning solution and you can look at the dirt on the floor and you can just, and just throw it all over the floor, right? And that would move the dirt a little bit, right? But actually, it's probably going to make things a lot worse. 
Because you're going to dump it on the floor, and you're going to spread it all over the place. It's going to be on the wall. Now there's dirt on the wall. It moved from the center of the floor. Now it's stuck in the crack, and you've got to get down there and, and get all that cleaned up. It actually created a worse problem. He said, or you can clean the floor in the kitchen by taking the mop and putting it in the water, taking a little bit out at a time, cleaning an area, going back, putting the mop in the water, bringing it out and cleaning the area. And this pastor that was saying this was saying that's the way that we love with truth. Maybe the best thing to do is not you run in and just dumping all this truth on somebody. Maybe it's you look at a time in their life and you speak truth in that time. Or maybe you, you wait and there's another time you come and you speak truth. You're always speaking truth. You're not running from the truth. You're not hiding the truth. But in sincerity, you're speaking truth in love at the right time. God might call us to, to dump that out at one point in somebody's life. But I think the wiser way, maybe the better way is that every so often we're speaking that truth in love. We're speaking that truth in love. And allowing them to see what true Christian love looks like. This is what it's telling us. Have a sincere love, a truthful love. Now, once again, this is hard, and this is something that, that is going to take a lot of time and investment, which is why I think he gives us the second description, that our love should be an earnest love. It's not a quick love, it's an earnest love. This word for earnest here is actually a, uh, uh, it's a term they would use to talk about marathon running, which I'm not a marathon runner. I do run, but marathon running just sounds brutal, and that's honestly what this word is trying to bring out. In the sense that when you run, you're exhausted and you're tired and you continue to push on. The word earnest literally means to be stretched. This is the kind of love that God is calling us to love with. Not, well, I'll, I'll run one lap of love and if they don't respond the way I want to or they hurt me again, then I'm tapping out. I'm done. That's not what he's talking about. He said our love should be an earnest love where we run to the point where we're like, I'm exhausted. And God's like, yes, I know how you feel. And I'm asking you, I'm telling you to stretch your love even farther. Well, then I stretch it farther. I'm still tired. I'm ex still exhausted. Yes, continue to push yourself, to stretch yourself, to love as I have loved you. And this is what that word means, right? That's a, that's a hard, heavy truth, right? To read earnestly and then just go on through this passage, that would be an easy thing to do. But to think on the word of God here, to let it rest in our minds. This is not a short one and done. This is a diving down deep, being earnest and loving the Lord. And I love that it's a, an exercise term. Because if you really think about it, when you exercise, the worst kind of exercise is when you're never exercising. And then you go and you, you're, you're, you never run and then you sprint and you're just like, oh my goodness, I am so winded and I just ran like one block, right? Or you go and you work out in the gym and you're exercising, you're working and you push yourself. And, and after you, you do that one time, you're like, oh my goodness, I am so sore. My body hurts so bad. And so we don't do it again. And my fear is that we live a lot of our Christian life like that. I will love for a sprint. And God is calling us to run for a marathon and to love in that way. And we're like, no, 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 I'll run a lap. And what we find is as we do love in short little sprints like this, is it exhausts us. And so we're like, I'm not doing that again for like a long time. And then we're like, oh, here's a need. I'm going to love sincerely. I'm going to love earnestly. And so we stretch ourselves to, to love. And then we're just like, okay, I'm done. I'm not doing that again. But the reality is with exercise, the more you do it, the better you get at it. 
The more you do it, the, the longer you're able to do it. The more you stretch yourself, the more you grow. And this is what it's inviting us to do. To not quit, to not run one lap, to not get frustrated with somebody within the church and just be like, I'm done, I'm through with this. I've run my one lap. No, it is to stretch ourselves and to push ourselves to love in a rich, deep way. Christian love is a strenuous type of love. It's a stretching type of love. But God is calling us to stick with it. When you want to give up, you don't. You continue, you push through. Because like Paul says in Corinthians, love never fails. Love never gives up. This is a completely different view on love than what our world is preaching to us. What God has called us to do as believers is to love love each other and the world in such a way that people look and see a sincere and earnest love. Now, what's fascinating to me as I'm reading this passage is you would think that verses 24 and 25 kind of I don't know where, maybe, maybe Peter had an ADD moment, and he was just like, oh, here's a good verse, let's drop it in here. Like, how in the world do 24 and 25 fit into this whole section? He's talking about how all flesh is like grass, and glory, the best moments of our life, that's just like the flower of the grass, and basically what he's saying here is we're all going to die, and even the best moments are short in your life. That's what Peter's saying. That's how you encourage somebody to love? <laughs> Like, Peter, that's what's going to, like, encourage me to, to, to love others well, like the fact that we're going to die soon? That's what you're saying? I think what he's trying to do right here is allow us to see the truth that this world is fleeting. So live like it. This world is, is fading away. So love like it. Love in light of eternity. And that's how we love one another in Christ, in light of eternity. John Newton, which some of you may know him, some of you don't, but uh, he actually, before he came to know the Lord, was a, a captain on a ship that actually had slaves on it. And when God saved him and redeemed him, he actually worked to end uh, the trade's uh, uh, slave ships and going back and forth. But what he's most known for is not what he did against slavery, although he did do a lot. What he's most known for is his song, Amazing Grace. If you've ever heard that song... John Newton's the one who wrote it. Now, he wrote many other things, but one of the things he wrote was actually a letter called On Controversy, in which he's talking to another pastor in another area of the city who has reached out to, to John and is like, hey, I am really struggling with what this other pastor's doing, this other Christian in the city. I'm really struggling with what they're doing. And so I'm about to write him this letter and say all these things about him because he needs to stop and change what he's doing. And so in this letter on controversy... John Newton wrote back to them, and he gives them a caution, not just to consider what he's writing, but what's within his heart. And one of the things that Newton talks about in his reply is viewing the other person in light of eternity. And he writes this, he says, If you count him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between the two of you, then let the words of David concerning Absalom be very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise 
and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of much forgiveness that you needed yourself. Listen to this. In a little while, you will meet him in heaven, and he there will be dearer to you than your nearest friend now that you have upon this earth. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may, if necessary, find a time to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with one whom you are happy in Christ with him forever. Is this not a good word, Christians? Is this not a good word for us believers that we would view each other in this way? That even Christians, even other fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ that we disagree with, we deal gently with them, we don't treat them harshly, but we love them with a sincere and earnest love. Why? Because we anticipate the day when we will love them more than our dearest family member or friend right now. That's what he's trying to help us to see. I believe that's what Peter's trying to help us to see in this passage. I think that's why Peter pulls this seemingly random passage from the Old Testament and drops it right here. Because he's telling us to love, and we're like, man, loving people is hard. Peter's like, yes, it is. But love in light of eternity. Like, keep the reality that this person that you might have conflict with or rub against, this is the person that you're going to enjoy eternity with. Worshiping the one has rescued and saved you both. Man, this is what we need in our world today, that we would love in this kind of way. This is an otherworldly kind of love. Now, I know that that's hard. And the only way, the only way that we're going to love in this way, the only way we're going to stretch and exhaust ourselves to love in this way, the only way we're going to be sincere with honest truth is we have to look to the, to the only one who has given to us true love. We look to, to Jesus Christ because, because he loved us, now we can love. I mean, think about it. Has anyone ever strained or reached as far to love you as Jesus has? Legitimately think about that. Has anyone reached or strained as far to love you as Jesus Christ has done? Think about it. The answer is no. Jesus strained and left heaven to come to earth. Jesus took off the garments of a king and took on the garments of a servant. He came from on high to a lowly baby in a manger. This is him stretching to show what us, what earnest love looks like, what a sincere love looks like. Jesus grew up and he faced temptation. This is stretching, right? Jesus healed people. And he could have healed everyone with just a word. But even stretched his love to go to those who had leprosy and other diseases and not just speak a word and heal them, but to bend down and to touch them. And to heal them. Stretched and strained to show us what true love really is. He fed people. I mean, Jesus could have said, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. Let them figure out their own problems, their own needs. You do that. But no, Jesus paused and he fed these people who were hungry. Jesus stretched his love to show us how much he loved us as he knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples. And we actually read in Luke chapter 22 that he prayed earnestly, the same word that's used right here. He prayed earnestly the night before he went to the cross. 
He prayed in such a way that he is stretching and pouring out his life for us. He's doing that. And then he would go and he would stretch out his hands literally on the cross and die for us. This is the kind of love that, that Christ is calling us to have. But he has first set the example. We love because he has first loved us. And Jesus didn't just stretch out his hands and die on the cross. He rose from the grave, and now he stretches out his hands to us to offer salvation. Oh, he is stretching, he is yearning that you would believe, that you would trust in him for your salvation. He even says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All that we would come and believe in Jesus and find salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. This is what Jesus has done. This is the love we look to when we are exhausted. When we think we can't run one more lap of love and patience for someone else. We look at how loving and patient Jesus was for us. And we follow his example. We follow his example. The second thing I want us to grasp today is that this living hope that we have, it leads us to put off relational poison and to partake in God's goodness. So he's going to tell us that we should have a love, and our, our living hope that we have in Jesus is going to leave us, lead us to have a sincere love and an earnest love. But then at the beginning of chapter 2, he's going to say, so as you live in that love, there's some things in your life that are going to have to change. There's some things in your life you're going to have to put off because it's relational poison. It will poison the water of love in your life as you have to put these things off. And then he gives us a long list. Did you see it in verse 1? talks about malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, this word for, for malice right here, this is intent to do harm. And I know for some of us, that might be hard to think or imagine that there's people in the world that would intentionally do us harm, right? Some of you, on the other hand, you're like, that's not too hard. That's not too hard for me to imagine like I've experienced that. I mean, I've sat in counseling meetings with people who have said, no, this person has to pay for what they've done. They have to feel the same amount of pain that I have felt, and so I'm going to make sure they feel that way. And Peter is telling us right here, that kind of thought, that kind of feeling in your heart will crush love. It will crush a sincere love. It will crush an earnest love. We have to put away all malice that we wouldn't intend to do hurt to others. But then he also says, all deceit. Deceit means to withhold truth or to distort truth, <laughs> which is the exact opposite of what we just talked about with the sincere love. The sincere love, what preaches truth, speaks truth, speaks truth in love. And then you have the opposite, the, the poison of love, where we start to deceive and we start to hide and we start to withhold truth from people. That's not real love. That is a poison to a loving community. He also talks about hypocrisy. This is a way of selfish living. That you put forward a false picture of who you really are. You put forth a version of me that's, that's not real. It looks, looks better than I really am. The fake you is doing just fine. The real you, it's a mess. And I think the temptation for our hearts to tend towards hypocrisy as we, we look and we see others' lives and we feel a deficiency in ours. And so we have to put on a show. We have to pretend. And as we pretend and we put on a show, nobody really knows who we are. 
And we never get in community, and we never truly love people because people don't know us, and we don't really know them, and so we just stay behind this facade of hypocrisy. He's like, man, if we want to love people well, then we've got to put this aside. Because you see, what will happen with hypocrisy is we start to realize our deficiencies, so we start to put on a show, and so we'll start to look at other people and what they have and what's going on in their life, and we'll start to envy that's what this passage says. The next thing is, we need to put off envy. You see, we'll, we'll look at other people and we'll want the things that they have in their life. We'll want it and we'll long for it for ourselves. And so we'll get mad when we look and we're like, well, I want to be beautiful, but that person's beautiful. I wanted to have wealth and, and security, but, but man, that person has what I want. And we start to envy what they want. But that's just one of the faces of envy. The other face of envy is, it's not just that I want what you want, what you have, is that I don't want you to have it. That I'd rather neither one of us have it. I, I would rather you lose all your money just so we, you and I are at evil, even level. This, when we start to look at other, other people like this, this will decay real love. This will decay community. It will. It will not build it up. It will not fortify it. It will break it down. And what envy will ultimately lead to, mark my words, what envy will ultimately lead to is slander. Well, now you have to look at others and you have to tear them down with your words in order to build yourself up. So you'll start to look at your words, you'll talk down other people in order that you feel better about yourself. And this is not a sincere love. This is not an earnest love. This is not a holy love. This is a cancer to love. We have to lay these things down. Ultimately, we have to repent of them. These are sins. If, you're, if you've been here and you're like, man, sin is a really big word. I don't know what sin is. Here's a small list of what sin looks like. And when we say we need to ask Jesus for forgiveness of our sins, we remember these things in our lives where, God, would you forgive me for these things? And here's the beauty. We have a hope that we will be forgiven because of who Jesus is. The one who purifies our souls. And so we can come before him with boldness, confessing these things. I haven't loved like you've called me to love. I've instead hold deeply to my malice. I've tried to deceive people or I've envied other people. And some of you have experienced cultures like this. You've seen it in a workplace or sadly in another church. And you're like, I am sick and tired of this. And you should be. Because it's not the way it's meant to be within the Christian world. It's not. We are meant to be loving, forgiving, merciful, kind, patient people. And so we look at these things in our life, and we can't just say, that person needs to stop. That person needs to be, stop being so slanderous towards others. That person needs to stop envying others. I hear them talk about it all the time. That person needs to lay their malice down. We, we need to not just look at others and say that, but that we would look in our own hearts and see it in us. That we would repent and we would change of some of these things. And this is what the gospel always does. The gospel doesn't just say, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, remove these things and then replace it with something better. And that's what Peter does in this passage. He says, put off all these things. Put off all these old things. And then it says in verse 2 of chapter 2, and long for desire. Replace all these old things with something new and better. And then he's going to mention two things that we need to replace these old things with in order for us to love well. He says, long for the 
pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And what he's mentioning there is he's pointing back to what he just talked about, the Word of God, and how it goes on forever. He says in verse 25, this is the Word, the good news that was preached to you. Multiple places in the Bible talks about the, the Word of God being like milk that we would take in, that it would grow us up. He's saying we should lo- put off these things and desire and to long for the Word of God. That we would long for this pure spiritual milk, that we would understand this love in a deeper, greater way. That we would look into the salvation that has been given to us through Jesus Christ, and that would challenge us to love others well. And the illustration that he uses in verse 2, he says, like newborn infants long for. Like a newborn infant knows it needs something. It's longing for, it's desiring for milk. And so it's going to cry multiple times a day and If you have young kids, multiple times a night, right? Because it's longing for it. It knows it needs that for its sustenance. You see, I love that he uses this illustration because he's telling us that we should long for the Word of God like an infant longs for milk. And if those of you that have kids know, even if you don't have kids, you'll know this. A, A child doesn't only drink milk once a week. A child doesn't just say, well, Sunday, I'm good. I'm just going to drink some milk on Sunday. That'll last me the rest of the week, right? No, it comes back because it longs for it. It knows that it needs it. And Peter's saying that's what we should be doing in our heart is we put off these things that we should be longing for more of the Word of God within our hearts. That we should desire to open it up and to read it and allow it to shape us and to mold us and to change us and to comfort us and encourage us and to guide us. That's what we should be longing for. The Word of God. You see, if we try to be loving with our lives, but at the same time we clench tightly all of these things in here, deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and malice, then we're trying to take in the Word of God like milk, but we have poison pellets in our mouth. And so we drink in God's Word, but we're holding on to our sin And it doesn't create love, it doesn't create community, it hurts us. We have to put away, spit out all these poisonous actions from our life and instead replace it with drinking in and longing for the truth of God's Word, that we would treasure our salvation. And then he also says in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, we long for the Word of God Absolutely. But then we also worship God. This is what tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is all about. That we would look and see His goodness in our life, even in the midst of suffering and pain, that we can look and see the goodness of God. You see, this is quoted from Psalm 34, verse 8, where it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Taste and see. And if you go back and read Psalm 34, you're going to see that that's written in a time of lament and suffering and pain. And yet he still writes, so I will taste and see that the Lord is good. And as we taste and see the Lord is good, his loving kindness to us is steadfast and it doesn't change and it doesn't move. It leads us to worship him, to praise him and to long for more of that. And then it result to pour forth love from our heart and our life. There's a lady named Anne Steele, who wrote hymns back in the 1700s. She wrote lots of hymns, 
and lots of different poetry, but one of the hymns she wrote is called Thou Loving Source of True Delight. And she writes of the goodness of Jesus in this hymn, but she knew the suffering and pain of this world as well. At the age of three, her mother had passed away. By the age of 19, she had had the sickness and disease that left her invalid. She met a man, she got engaged, but before they could get married at the age of 21, he died suddenly. And this woman had drunk deeply of the pain and suffering in this world, very much like the people at the time, First Peter's writing this. And yet she still sees the goodness of God. She still says, taste and see that he is good. So in this hymn that she writes, Loving Source of True Delight, she says this, Loving Source of True Delight, who unseen I still adore, unveil your beauties to my sight that I might love you more. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful ray, break through the shades of night and chase my fears away. This is a prayer of a woman who had tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and it led her to live a life of living hope that birthed love from a pure heart. Well, church family, may we taste and see that the Lord is good because he has first loved us, and in response, turn around and love him and love others. Pray with me. Lord, you are good. We might not feel it right now, but Lord, help us to remember, Lord, of the past, of days you have been faithful. Help us to look forward to the days ahead where we know that you are faithful and true. And even right now, when we doubt, help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to respond to your goodness, a goodness that stretched deep and wide and far in order to extend us an invitation of salvation. For those of us who have not trusted, Lord, I pray, I pray today that those of us that have lived with our sin of envy or malice, that we would release that, that we would repent of that now and admit that we're in, that we're in sin and we need a Savior. Lord, help us to pray to you now and ask, ask that you would do exactly what you promised. You've stretched your love wide for us to see. You've extended your hand far. Lord, may we grab that hand and believe today. Confess that we need you and ask you to forgive us of our sins. Lord, help us do that today. Even before we leave this room, may we confess you as Lord. May we be obedient to the truth, this passage. And Lord, for others of us who have trusted in you, God, maybe we're weary in our love. God, would you help us to to run another lap. Help us to run farther. Help us to stretch ourselves a new way to love as you have loved us. Help us to be sincere, truthful, and honest with people. God, when, when our hearts would rather hide and just hope people don't notice us or ignore us in our faith, God, give us boldness to be sincere in our love, to share your truth. Jesus, we know that apart from you, we can do none of this, none of this. And so, Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we worship you for your goodness today. It's in your name we ask. Amen. Church family, let's stand now and sing of the goodness of God to us.